jumping back into the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And if you are new to Walnut Creek within even like the last year, then you might not know that we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke over the spring and summer months for the last six years. So this is our seventh installment of the Gospel of Luke. And we'll take about 20 weeks over the summer typically to study through Luke. And the reason we decided to do it that way is that if we studied through it Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all at once, it would have taken us about two and a half years. And that's a long time to spend in a sermon series. So we've decided to break it up, and we are finishing Luke this Easter season. So we're going to spend seven weeks studying the Gospel of Luke. If you did not get one on your way in, at the Welcome Center, we do have individual study guides for, they're, they're smaller than normal because it's only seven weeks, but we have all the text and questions, and you can pick those up at the Welcome Center on your way out if you're interested in one of those. If you're going to be here for the next seven weeks, definitely recommend that. But go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, and this is going to be interesting because we're picking up the story right at the very climax. The most dramatic moment in the gospel is right where we're at. It'd be like watching your favorite movie, but starting at the last 15 minutes, like right at the best part. That's kind of what we're doing, but God will give us grace. Let's go ahead and read the section, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll jump into it together. So Luke 23, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 12 this morning. It says this, Then their whole assembly rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests and the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. But they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time, he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, first, God, that we can enter your presence, God, that we can come before you and worship, God, that we can hear your voice in the scriptures, God, that we can praise you together as the body of Christ. What a privilege, Lord. We thank you for the gift of worship, God, that you made us, you gave us the ability to know you and be known by you. God, thank you for this story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we're going to study over the course of the next several weeks. God, I pray that you would use it to stir up our hearts, stir our affections for you, God. Remind us of these life-changing, earth-shattering truths in a new, fresh way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a question, and the question is this. 
How certain are you that the gospel is true? That's the question. If you had to put a percentage on it, I'm 100% sure I would bet my life on it. The gospel is true. Or I'm 0% sure I am here this morning because somebody drugged me here and I definitely don't believe it. (laughs) Or somewhere in between, 80%. 67 percent how certain are you that the gospel is true now let me tell you what some of you are thinking right now you're thinking darren i'm not quite sure i know exactly what the gospel is (laughs) and that's okay you're definitely not alone i've been asking a lot of people recently the question what is the gospel not how certain are you that it's true but what is the gospel and what i found is that many many people don't know the answer to that question. Even Christians who know what the gospel is, and they could explain it to you, they just don't know that it's called the gospel. So you're not alone if you're not quite sure what the gospel is. I'll give you a quick definition. The word gospel, it comes from the Greek word euangelion. New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word is euangelion, which simply means good news. In fact, many times in the New Testament, the word euangelion gets translated into English, good news. Often in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the good news of the kingdom of God. So the Gospel is synonymous with the good news. Have you ever gotten good news? Like really significant, weighty good news? I remember when I was 22 years old, I just graduated from Drake University. It was, the year was 2006. I'd never made more than $10 an hour in my life, and I had my first real job interview. I was so excited. It was with Principal Financial Group right here in town. I was a business major at Drake. And this was bottom of the barrel entry level position in their insurance department when they still sold and serviced insurance products. So I go to the interview and I just nailed the interview. I mean, the person who was interviewing me basically told me I had the job. And so I was thrilled. So they said, go home. You should hear from us in about a week. Week goes by, no news. Second week goes by, no news. Week three, I get an email. And the email is from principal and it essentially says, hey, it's not us, it's you. Uh, Thanks, but no thanks. (laughs) We're not going to hire you. And I was devastated, obviously, until I got a phone call like two hours later. And it was the HR rep from principal. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry. You probably got that email. I meant to call you earlier in the day. I got busy. Listen, we're not going to give you that job because we want to hire you for a different job that is a much better job, less entry level, pays a lot more. Congratulations. And so that was a big day for me. It was really, really good news. And my guess is that all of you have received news like that many times in your life. Really good news. And that's what the gospel is. It's good news, but it's not just any good news. The word euangelion, it shows up 76 times in the New Testament, which is a lot. And it's not referring to generic good news. It's referring to a very specific message, the gospel message. Now, what is the gospel message? Greg Gilbert wrote a book called What is the Gospel? He says you can sum it up in four words. I think this is a helpful way to remember it. Four words. If you can remember these words, it will help you remember sort of the flow of the good news of the gospel. So the words are God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. So what is the good news of the gospel? God exists. God created the universe. He gave you life. He is good, perfect, holy, and just. And as his creation, you exist to have a relationship with him. That's why he made you. And you are accountable to him. He is your God. Second word, man. Man meaning not just men, men and women, human beings, mankind. 
which is all of you, man, you are not like God. You are not good like God. You are not righteous like God. You're not holy like God. You have failed to obey God's laws and keep His commands, which means you are guilty before Him. You've sinned against Him, and in His justice, He must punish you, which means your relationship with Him is broken because of your sin. Third word is Christ. God sent His Son into the world. Jesus, being fully God and fully human, lived a sinless, perfect life. And Jesus died on the cross. And when He died on the cross, He went there as your substitute. This is why Jesus came. This is why God became a man, to take your punishment for sin that you deserve. Fourth word, response. So who gets forgiven? Who gets saved by the atoning work of Jesus on the cross? Everyone who acknowledges their guilt, turns their heart away from sin and the world and toward God, and relies on or trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection for their forgiveness will be restored to right relationship with God. You'll be made clean, holy, cleansed, righteous, and you'll be given eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel. God, man, Christ, response. And the question is, how certain are you that that message is true? It's an important question. The reason we're beginning with this question is because as we enter the last few chapters of Luke this spring, I want to remind you why Luke wrote this book. The very first sermon that we went through together on Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This was in the year 2017 now, which is kind of crazy. I'd been a pastor for less than a year. But Luke's gospel begins with these four verses. He says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, that's his audience, that's the man who commissioned this narrative, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. Luke's stated purpose for writing this story, this biography of the life and ministry and death, resurrection of Jesus, is to give his readers certainty about Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? Why did he come? Can we trust these things? That's his goal, is to give you certainty. So how certain are you that the gospel is true? The reason this question is so important is that certainty is what changes you. Certainty about what is true is what changes you. It's not just intellectual understanding, knowing the facts of the story, knowing the flow of the plot, knowing the names and places. It's one thing to be familiar with the story. It's another thing to be rock solid, certain these things are real and true. Let me give you a quick illustration. If I told you (coughs) that later this week, Facebook stock or some major stock, Apple, is going to increase tenfold, 1,000% return on your investment, you can take it to the bank. If you believed me, if you were certain that I had information that this was true, then what you would do, any rational person, you're going to liquidate all your assets and go invest them in that stock. Because boom, then it's 1,000% return. Ten times your current net worth. If you were certain now, That's not going to happen, I promise you. So don't do that. I'm not a financial advisor. 
But certainty is what changes you. It's, it's certainty. And this section of Luke's gospel is one of those that grounds the gospel in certainty for us. And it does that by establishing three undeniable facts about Jesus. I've often wondered, why do we get this little exchange between Pilate and Herod? So Jesus, he's on trial before Pilate. Pilate sends him over to Herod. Herod mocks him, sends him back to Pilate. It's just like, why, why is this here? Well, the reason I think that Luke gives us this information is because he wants to establish some undeniable facts about Jesus that will give us certainty. It's about certainty. So three undeniable facts about Jesus. This is what we're going to look at with the rest of our time. Fact number one, Jesus was a significant historical person. And you might say, duh. <laughs> I mean, we're in church. Of course, we think Jesus was a real person. Brothers and sisters, don't take this for granted. Don't take it for granted. Luke doesn't take this for granted. Repeatedly throughout Luke's gospel, Luke is intentionally grounding Jesus in history. This is what he's doing. And he's very meticulous about how he does it. Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, this is the Christmas story. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Why does he give us all of these political and logistical details? Okay, here's who the emperor was. And he was, you remember the, the registration, the census? There's multiple phases to it. This is phase one. This was the one when Quirinius was the governor in Syria. And you just think, we're reading this 2,000 years later. I have no idea what you're talking about, Luke. <laughs> like, why are you giving us all these details? Well, what he's doing is he's linking the events to a very specific place and time in history. This would be like for us as modern Americans. This would be like if we said, in those days, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation when William M. Stone was the governor of the state of Iowa. If, if I started a story like that, you would, you would all know, you'd have some context. You'd say, okay, this is 1865 and the years following, and, and you would know what's going on in the United States. This is the, the country is reeling, recovering from a brutal civil war, trying to figure out how to set millions of slaves free. This is a gigantic cultural moment. And then you would know more regionally as Iowans, We'd think of free, freed slaves migrating here because Iowa was a free state that by and large really helped slaves and fought against slavery. And that would have really impacted our state and our cities as people are migrating here. And so you have, you have all of this context. It places whatever the rest of the story is in a specific time and cultural context in history. And this census was a major event in the Roman world. It directly impacted the early life of Jesus in very significant ways. Now, that's Luke 2, now we're in Luke 23. So Luke, he wants, to, he wants to ground the early life of Jesus in history, and he wants to ground the end of Jesus' life in history as well. So where are we in history? particularly the history of Jesus' life and ministry. Our passage takes place on Friday of Passover week in the city of Jerusalem. This is the day that Jesus dies. In fact, in these verses, we are just hours away from the crucifixion. It's helpful to understand kind of what led up to this. On Monday of this week, Jesus and his followers, they entered the city of Jerusalem. They weren't in Jerusalem. They went there very intentionally. They show up on Monday. On Monday, there's crowds of people lining the streets as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Tens of thousands. 
And they're hailing him essentially as the Messiah, as the king. Hosanna, they say. They cry out as he enters Jerusalem on a donkey, which was customary for the entrance of a king. On Tuesday, Jesus went into the temple, the temple which was considered a sacred place, a holy place, and Jesus goes in there and he just wrecks shop. There's a lot of corruption in the temple. He kicks out all the money changers. He kicks out all the people selling sacrifices. He cleanses the temple. And then for the next two days, Tuesday and Wednesday, he's there all day teaching. Thousands of people, crowds of people. He's teaching. He's challenging the religious leaders. He's establishing he has the authority to teach in the temple, which this in and of itself was unprecedented and historically significant. On Thursday then, Jesus and his disciples prepared the Passover meal. They ate the Last Supper. This is when Judas leaves during the meal to betray Jesus. Then in the evening, they went to the Mount of Olives, which is where they spent the night. Luke tells us that they would, they'd be in the temple all day. In the evening, they would go to the Mount of Olives. And the reason they went there is because it was hidden. It was outside of the city. It was remote. It was basically like being out in the woods. And Jesus and his disciples, they went there because it was hidden. So Jesus knew and his disciples knew that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. At the very least, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to silence him, but they couldn't do it publicly because Jesus was so popular. There's thousands of people. Everywhere Jesus goes, thousands of people gathered around him, wanting to hear him teach, wanting to be healed by him. And so if the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders just show up and arrest him, the people will riot. They will turn on them. So they couldn't have that. And they couldn't do it at night in secret because they didn't know where he was. They're essentially hiding in the Mount of Olives. And so Judas told them for 30 pieces of silver, he betrays all of his brothers. And in the very first hours of that Friday morning, Judas escorted the temple police, soldiers, and a mob of angry religious leaders to the secret spot near the Garden of Gethsemane where the disciples stayed at night. And they arrested Jesus. So this just happened. Then Jesus was taken to Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. He was interrogated before the entire Jewish Sanhedrin. Again, this is historically significant. The Jewish Sanhedrin was a council of 70 members. It was the highest court in Israel. It'd be like going before the Supreme Court, having your case escalated all the way up to the Supreme Court. They're all present for Jesus' trial, which is not really a trial at all. It takes place at roughly 2 in the morning, <laughs> so we're off to a bad start. My parents used to tell me nothing good happens after about 11 p.m., so we're way beyond that. 2 in the morning, in secret, middle of the night, and even their own religious rules. The Jews had rules that they were fastidious about maintaining. One of them was that you couldn't have a trial at night. It was, it was deemed illegal. You couldn't convene for a trial at night, but they totally ignore that because they're not interested in justice at all. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it says this, verse 26. I'm sorry, chapter 26, verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus. I mean, that is a shocking statement. This is a setup from the very start. This is, this is all a, a mockery of justice. They're actually looking. Is there anybody willing to come lie about Jesus? Come on up. We're looking for false testimony so that they could put him to death. The verdict's already been rendered. This is not justice. This is not a trial. 
This is a way to murder a man and make it look like they went through the appropriate steps. Verse 60, but they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. So they've got lots of shysters that are willing to lie about Jesus, probably for money, but they're not smart enough to coordinate their lies. It doesn't add up. It's not sticking. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it, rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You've said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Essentially what Jesus is saying here, He's quoting the book of Daniel, and he's saying, not only am I the Messiah, but I am God. I am the Son of God. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? 2 a.m., middle of the night, cover of darkness, in secret. They convict him, they sentence him to death, and then they beat and mock him. Luke 22 tells us that they convened the court again in the morning because they had to make it official. So they put the plan together in secret in the middle of the night. They condemn him to death without a legitimate accusation. Then they meet in the morning to ratify the decision. They have to make it official. They have to make it look like they actually went through the appropriate steps. So they had sort of the dress rehearsal in the middle of the night, and then they act out the fake trial in the morning. Jump through the hoops, cut the red tape, but there's still an obstacle to their plan. Israel is occupied by the Roman government at this time in history, the Roman military, which means they don't have the authority to execute criminals. And so they have to take Jesus to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman governor at this time. Verse 1, chapter 23 says, Then their whole assembly rose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Now back to our point here. There, there are two facts in Luke 23 that make the historicity of Jesus undeniable. So no matter who you are, if you're a critic, you're a Christian, you're a Jew, you're a Muslim, you're an atheist, these two facts make the reality that Jesus was a historically significant person undeniable. The first is that he appeared before Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the most powerful person in Israel at this time in history. He was the fifth Roman governor of the province of Judea. History tells us this. He was appointed by Tiberius Caesar. He served from AD 26 to AD 36, 10 years. And all of this, we have a lot of information about Pontius Pilate that comes outside of the Bible. It's corroborated by extra biblical sources. Philo of Alexandria was a Jewish historian, Josephus, and then Tacitus. Tacitus, I think, is probably the most compelling. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And he not only mentions Pilate, but he also mentions that Pilate was known for putting Jesus to death. This is not a Jew, not a Christian. This is a Roman. He says Pontius Pilate was known for putting Jesus to death. 
So this is a very big deal. Jesus is put on trial very publicly in the capital city of Jerusalem with the most powerful Roman governor as the judge. That's a monumental claim. And the source material that makes these claims, both the biblical text and the historical contemporaries, dates to within just decades. So the oldest papyrus manuscripts that we have that talk about these things, copies of copies, but they date to within decades of the events themselves, which means this for sure happened. That's what it means. Jesus appeared before Pilate. It's as historically certain as the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Christians, Jews, secular historians are all in, a be, all in agreement about this. Now notice what the Jews say to Pilate. They want to execute Jesus for blasphemy, but that's not what they tell Pilate because they know he's not going to care about that at all. He's like, that's your guys' weird religious stuff. I'm not worried about that. You go deal with that. So they change the charge in verse 2. They say, listen, he's telling people not to pay their taxes, which is a blatant lie. Jesus just told people a couple chapters before when he was in Jerusalem to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's like, yeah, pay your taxes. Obey the government. They say he's an insurrectionist. They say he's trying to start a revolution. They say he's, he's trying to appoint himself as a king. But in the garden, Jesus tells Peter, put down your sword. He's like, if we were going to fight, I could call down a legion of angels. We would dominate. He's not a revolutionary. Pilate was in charge of maintaining order for Rome and Israel, and so if this was true, he would, he would not have hesitated even for a second to put Jesus to death. But instead, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered, you say so. Jesus basically says, yeah, I am. Pilate then told the chief priests and crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. They kept insisting he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he started even to hear. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem during those days. So the second fact that tells us that Jesus was certainly a historically significant person is that he appeared before Herod. Not only does he appear before Pilate, he appears before Herod. And so Pilate, he does what any skilled politician would do, in a conundrum like this, he passes the responsibility off to someone else. <laughs> he says, ooh, this is a tough one. Oh, he's a Galilean? Great. He's, a, he's not under my jurisdiction. Not my responsibility. And Herod was in Jerusalem at this time, so this is just walking distance. He says, go see Herod. Jesus appeared then before Herod. This is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great was in power when Jesus was born. This is his son, one of four sons. He was known as Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch. Tetrarch, uh, it means a quarter. And so Herod the Great, when he died, he divided the kingdom up between his four sons. And Herod Antipas was one of those sons. He ruled the kingdom of Galilee and Perea, a quarter of the kingdom of his father. And he was known or notorious mostly for scandal both political scandal and family scandal. He married Herodias, who was previously the wife of his brother, Herod II, and at the same time was his niece. So he divorces his wife, marries his brother's wife, who's also his niece. We read about this in the Gospels, but you can also read about this in the contemporary history. Philo of Alexandria, Josephus talk about this quite a bit. In fact, we have more information about Herod the Tetrarch than we do about Pontius Pilate. 
Verse 8 says, Herod was very glad to see Jesus. For a long time he had wanted to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. So you can kind of envision this situation. The Jews are taking this very seriously. This is a really big deal, and Herod just thinks the whole thing is funny. He's like, you guys are a joke. You guys are a bunch of clowns. Get this guy out of here. Verse 12 says, that very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Now, I think verse 12 is a little bit odd. Why is that included here? Well, there's two reasons. First is that this is actually the fulfillment of a very important prophecy. Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. That's the Messiah. And so this is the fulfillment of this prophecy. You have Herod and you have Pilate, the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth, conspiring together to put Jesus to death. It's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. But also, this further grounds the story in ancient history. Philo of Alexandria, he explains this tension. Again, this is extra biblical. This is not a biblical source. This is a Jewish historian in the first century. And he explains that there was tension between Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch had ruled since AD 6. He's established in the region. He's been ruling for 20 years. And Herod the Tetrarch had a very good relationship for the most part with the Jews. And part of this is because he was a quarter Jewish. His father, Herod the Great, was half Jewish, half he was Idumean, uh, Edomite and Jewish. And so he understood, he understood the Jewish culture, and he tried to be sensitive to their customs. So one of the things the Jews hated when the Romans took over is they hated the fact that Romans, whoever the leader was in a region, when they minted coins, they would put their image on it. And we don't think that's weird. We actually still do that today. If you pull out some change from your pocket, you've got George Washington on a quarter, and you've got Abraham Lincoln on a penny. Well, they did this, the Romans did this, and the Jews hated it. They viewed it as idolatry. So they viewed the, the commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, is you should not make for yourself a graven image. And they thought that little quarter, that little penny, that's a graven image. That's a carved image. That's idolatry. And it was disgusting to them. And so Herod, the Tetrarch, when he minted coins, he did not put his face on them. He tried to honor the Jewish customs. And so he had a good relationship with the Jews for the most part. And then Pilate gains power in AD 26. Herod's already been there for 20 years. And what Philo tells us is that one of the things that Pilate did is that he had shields with carved Roman images on them placed in Herod's palace in Jerusalem. It was like making a statement that he was in power. He was making some changes, shaking things up. Herod did not like that at all. And so Herod petitioned to Caesar to have the shields removed. And you think, man, this is all political, silly nonsense. It happens today. It happened 2,000 years ago. But he goes, he goes over Pilate's head. Pilate has the authority in Jerusalem. That's his jurisdiction. He's, he is the highest leader, boots on the ground, in the nation of Israel. Herod goes over his head directly to Caesar, and Caesar grants Herod's request. Shields have to be removed. And so there's all kinds of tension between Pilate and Herod. They do not like each other at all. But on this day, Luke says, they become friends. 
They became friends because of their common problem of dealing with Jesus together. And all of that is historical background provided outside of the Bible that dovetails perfectly with the biblical account. So this is the idea. Jesus is rooted solidly in Roman and Jewish history. And that's the first fact that gives us certainty about him. The second fact in Luke 23 is that Jesus was unquestionably innocent. Jesus was innocent. Remember the charge is blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God, which in and of itself is not reason to put him to death. You first have to, you, you have to ask the question, well, is it true? <laughs> I mean, Jesus, he had raised people from the dead. He's performing miracles. He's healing thousands of people. He turns water into wine. He multiplies the loaves and the fish. He's casting out demons. He's born of a virgin. He has the right genealogy. He's a descendant of David. He's born in the right town in Bethlehem. He marks, he checks all of the boxes. He fulfills all of the prophecy about the Messiah. Didn't matter. They said, can't be you. Not you. This is blasphemy. And they sentenced him to death. But they knew Pilate wouldn't care about that at all. They said, nope, he's a revolutionary. He's trying to overthrow Rome. Pilate then told the chief priests and crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. Pilate did not get to his position of power by being gullible and stupid. (laughs) The Jews hated the Romans. If Jesus really served as a legitimate threat to Rome, as a political figure, as a military figure, the Jews, they wouldn't have turned him over. They would have supported him. (laughs) They would have loved him not turned him in. This is why in Matthew, it says, Matthew 27, 18, for Pilate knew it was because of envy that they had handed him over. He sees right through it. He says, this is, you you guys are a bunch of clowns. This is nonsense. This is about envy. It's not about justice. It's not about the fact that you you care about Roman rule. You you know, you want to help me do my job. Pilate sees right through their accusations. Apparently so did Herod. We're going to look at this more next week, but when you get to verse 13 of Luke 23, it says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, you have brought me this man as one who misleads the people. But in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. The pagan, wicked rulers of the Gentiles could so easily and clearly see what God's people refuse to acknowledge. They're like, this guy is completely innocent. He's a totally innocent man. He has committed no crime at all. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. I mean, can you imagine a situation where you'd be tempted to do something a little bit off? I mean, act in a way that's a little bit dishonorable to God. You're totally innocent and you're being beaten. You're being mocked. You're being spit on. You're being drugged around the city. They're trying to put you to death. And Jesus never slipped up once. He he trusted the father. He didn't even try to defend himself. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 5. John says the same thing in 1 John 3. The author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 4. Jesus was utterly without sin. He was a perfect man in every way. Pilate and Herod testified to what the rest of the New Testament writers claimed, that Jesus was innocent. Fact number three. 
Jesus was crucified as a criminal under Pontius Pilate. We're going to get to this part of the story next week. But all four gospel writers affirm that Pilate eventually gave in to the desires of the Jews, not because Jesus was guilty, but because he didn't want a riot to break out. Again, many ancient historians, including the ones we already mentioned, verify the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. And I'm going to share a quote with you. This quote comes from a very reputable source. This is from Wikipedia. And I chose this quote specifically because Wikipedia is generally not friendly to Christianity. It's not, they're not trying to do Christians any favors as far as apologetics. But this is in an article on the Roman historian Tacitus. It says this, the scholarly consensus is that Tacitus's reference to the execution of Jesus by Pontius Pilate is both authentic and of historical value as an independent Roman source. Paul Eddy and Gregory Boyd argue that it is firmly established that Tacitus provides a non-Christian confirmation of the crucifixion of Jesus. So nobody's arguing about this. Jesus was a historically significant person. He appeared before Pontius Pilate. He appeared before Herod. They both found him to be innocent, and then he was crucified anyway. These things are undeniable. So just to sum up, consider consider the claims. Jesus was tried and found to be innocent by the two most powerful men in Israel during the first century. That, That in and of itself is a massive claim. He was still turned over to be crucified. Consider when and where these claims were made. This was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. That's like saying these things happened in Times Square on New Year's Eve. I mean, it's flooded with people. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses, which means in order for these things to be true, they would need to be verified by thousands of eyewitnesses, which means if they were embellished, if they were altered, everyone would know. Christianity would have been rejected as nonsense immediately. It'd be like if I made the claim, hey guys, guess what? This was really cool. I was at Joe Biden's inauguration. I was there. And you probably saw it on TV as he's walking off stage. He came right up to me, he introduced himself. He shook my hand. He said, Darren Miedema, I've heard you're the best pastor in America. Congratulations. <laughs> what would you think if I said that? <laughs> Regardless of political views. I mean, you would, you would think, really? And then you would, you would say, well, this is very easy to verify because there's like tens of thousands of people at the presidential inauguration. It'd be so easy to verify whether or not this happened. The idea is it's very difficult to lie about public spectacles. There's just too many eyes on the situation. There's too many people who remember exactly what happened. And Jesus' trial before Pilate and Herod was a public spectacle, which means these are historical facts. They are certain. Now, they don't mean, therefore, Jesus is God. You don't just jump straight to there. There's other arguments for that, but they should at least get our attention. Jesus was real. Jesus was innocent. Jesus died in a very public and dramatic way, and then he altered the course of human history. Those are facts that should get our attention. Jesus, at the very least, requires your consideration. And the claim is he died for you. He came for you. 
It's easy to look at this story and think, man, Jesus is just this innocent victim being drugged around. That's not what happened at all. God became a man, and he went to the cross on purpose. Jesus says, nobody takes my life away from me. I willingly lay it down. We looked at this in the, in the previous section. But it talks about how when they, when they came into the garden to arrest Jesus, some scholars think there was up to 1,000 people there. And, and Jesus just speaks, and they all fall to the ground. <laughs> and it's kind of like he's just flexing a little bit. And, and then he says, listen, if, if we wanted to fight, Peter, put down your sword. If we wanted to fight, it wouldn't be a fight. I'd just call down legions of angels, and we would just, I could just turn all of these guys into mice if I wanted to. I mean, he's, he is God, but he tells his disciples repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. We're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. This is why he came. He did it on purpose, and he did it for you. He did it because he loves you. He did it to save you. What will you do with him? That's the question. What will you do with Jesus? The Jews hated him and they rejected him. Herod laughed at him and mocked him. Pilate passively dismissed him. They all had the Son of God in their midst. They all had the opportunity to receive the thing that they were made for, forgiveness of sin, restored relationship with their creator, and they rejected it. What will you do with Jesus? My hope is that as we study through the end of the Gospel of Luke, you will embrace him freshly. That you will see his face in a way that changes the way you see the world. Maybe for the first time, for some of you. And even if you've been a Christian for a long time, I have the same hope for you. You can never add too much to your certainty about the Gospel. We need to become more and more and more established in our certainty about these things. It doesn't matter if you're 25 or 75 or 95. We want to grow in our certainty that whenever the end comes, I'm going to see him face to face. It is certainty about the truth that changes you, draws you to worship. It's what brings you joy. It's what brings you hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your grace, your mercy, that you would send your only son into the world to suffer such incredible injustice. Now, when we think about men like Pilate and Herod, there's a part of us that says, wow, that's, that's power. You know, that kind of authority, that kind of power, that kind of influence to just be able to snap your fingers and determine whether or not someone lives or dies. That kind of wealth, that kind of influence. But God, then to think about, you created the universe. You own everything. (laughs) You spoke it into existence You have all authority and all power, infinite wisdom, infinite resources. And yet you sent your son into the world. And Jesus, you humbled yourself. You condescended. You became a man and then you subjected yourself to this kind of injustice so that we could be saved, so that we could be cleansed of sin, so that we could be set free, so that we could have a relationship with God. Lord, the love that you have for us, it's just incomprehensible. None of us would do that for someone else. (laughs) And yet you did it for us. And so, God, we thank you, we praise you, and God, I praise we study Luke's gospel over these next several weeks that you would 
just stir our affections for you, God, that you would, you would ground our certainty about these things in their reality in a way that strengthens us, God, emboldens us, that, that gives us just freedom from the things that we cling to in this life, sets us free to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name.